I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is a former Microsoft, CIA and Goldman Sachs employee who, perhaps unsurprisingly, has found his way to somewhere very close to the top of the cyber insurance tree in the past few years. With a billion dollars in run rate GWP after just five years, major VC funding, aggressive international expansion plans, and now a newly acquired US admitted carrier, Coalition and its CEO Joshua Motta have quite a story to tell. With his deep cybersecurity background, it was likely that Coalition was going to build something very different from incumbent insurers, and indeed, the firm's offering is much more of a joined-up full service than many of its competitors. As Joshua puts it, Coalition owns the repair shop, and that helps a lot with risk engineering and loss mitigation. And so far, the results have been excellent. The grand tour of the Coalition modus operandi is really interesting, but it's when the conversation spreads to more weighty industry topics that I think this podcast really takes off. Joshua has some really strong views about how fears around systemic risk in cyber have been overblown, and how to unlock the capacity that cyber will need if it is to continue its fast growth without hitting capacity constraints. Now, you may say he would say that, but now that Coalition's funding more of its own underwriting, Joshua is clearly happy to put his money where his mouth is. Coalition is also putting some of its own modelling work out on open source to help others get comfortable with its view of risk. I definitely recommend a listen for anyone nervous about committing capital to cyber reinsurance for fear of earth-shattering systemic risk. The counter-arguments made here are pretty convincing. This is a great conversation with someone who is master of their specialism. Enjoy the podcast. This episode is supported by Oxbow Partners. Oxbow Partners is a management consulting business specialising in the London, Bermuda and European insurance and reinsurance markets. In fact, in 2021 and 2022, they were named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. It's fascinating speaking to the team about the kinds of topics they're supporting. Helping reinsurers take a strategic view of their operating models, designing smart follow syndicates in the Lloyds market, and developing ESG responses. The company's strapline talks about giving executives a fresh perspective. So if you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, I'd recommend giving the team at Oxbow Partners a call. Well, Joshua, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. It's great to be here. You're probably getting really tired of doing this because Coalition has been around for quite a long time. And it's a bit like some of these DC comic and Marvel action movies. There's so many origin stories being told, but I think it probably is good for you to tell our listeners a bit about your origin story or Coalition's origin story, a bit about your background and then how you came to found Coalition. Yeah, of course. I'm somewhat flattered that we're considered an experienced hand, you know, five years in the insurance industry. We still feel young compared to many others, but my journey started really at quite a young age. I've always been an entrepreneur and had sort of an entrepreneurial spirit. Perhaps it's because I grew up in Midwestern United States and really didn't want to wake up early in the morning to do the paper route. So (laughs) I taught myself how to program, which ultimately led to a job at Microsoft as a teenager, which led to other software engineering jobs, led to the Central Intelligence Agency, where I spent a number of years, and then ultimately into finance at Goldman Sachs, where I was actually based in London. Fond memories of my time there. Spent a number of years in finance before kind of getting back to building companies. And so I was on the founding team of a very large technology cybersecurity company called Cloudflare, which led to Coalition. And sometimes I tell people Coalition is what would happen if you combined a financial service, in this case, of course, insurance, with a technology company. 
and an intelligence community mindset when it comes to data collection and analysis. And so that is absolutely what Coalition is. That's what my background is. And you know, the reason we founded the company was to really solve a significant problem facing our society on both sides of the pond and all corners of earth, which is really the growing pervasiveness of technological risk. We as a society are increasingly dependent on technology. And when it fails, it's either extremely painful or in some cases existential, and not just to the organization using it. I mean, even to human life, if we think about industrial control systems or healthcare technology. And so Coalition was very much founded to help solve this problem. So you're an entrepreneur five years ago, you're obviously seeing the cyber insurance is starting to really take off. When you were designing Coalition, what sort of USPs were you trying to build into? What sort of pitch were you trying to make to customers and to investors and maybe to potential employees when you were trying to design something that was different, that would differentiate itself in the market? It almost starts with the name of the company. The idea was that anytime an industry faces a shared risk, such as cyber risk, much less every industry, of course, in this particular case, it just doesn't make sense for each individual constituent to try and tackle that problem by themselves. And yet that's what the majority of organizations globally are doing, right? They're on their own. Most business owners, whether in England or the United States, don't worry about protecting the land, sea, and air around them. They have the Air Force or the Navy or local law enforcement or whatnot. But there's now this fourth domain, which is the digital cyber domain. And practically every national government is told the commercial sector that they're on their own. That's a scary place to be. And so I think really the epiphany for founding coalition was, hey, this isn't strictly a technology problem. And I'd say five years ago when we were founding the company, that was how a lot of organizations approached it. You know, let's go out and buy more technology to try and protect us from the risk that the technology we've installed in the first place brought to us. And so it, it always seems somewhat circular. So again, that, that epiphany was really, hey, this isn't exclusively a technology problem. It's really a risk management problem. And if you think about it in that lens, there's sort of three things you can do. You can accept the risk, you can mitigate it. And of course, technology can play a positive or negative role as, as we've seen, or you can transfer it, right? The math is fairly simple. Whatever you haven't transferred or mitigated, you have accepted. And so the pitch for us was building a company that did all of these things, that helped organizations understand how much risk they had, that helped them mitigate the risk, prevent things from happening, that could respond very quickly in the instant that something happened. And that was important, right? Because as a business owner, if normally if you're the victim of a crime, you can call the police, right? Or, or you know, the fire department for some other sort of emergency. When it comes to cyber-related incidents, good luck, right? Sadly, the fire department will not put out the fire inside of your network. The police putting a couple bullets through your, you know, your windows <laughs> isn't really going to have the intended effect. And so we were able to really fill that gap. Like we are that lifeline, that emergency services line for our customers. And of course, we performed the risk transfer like a traditional insurance company. So that was very much the pitch. Let's build a modern insurance company that doesn't just issue a document that sits on a shelf and collects dust that delivers no value to a customer until, of course, something triggers a claim. Let's build an insurance company that can actively prevent losses from happening. Because let's face it, anyone who buys insurance doesn't ever want to have to deal with the insurance company, doesn't want to go through the pain of loss, you know, even if the insurance is very valuable in helping them recover. And so we do everything possible to sort of actively manage that risk for our clients. And that's a pitch that resonated to investors, of course, 
certainly to employees, like we're a very mission-driven company. We are purpose-built every day to help businesses manage what is an increasingly pervasive risk for themselves. And of course, it's made an impact in the market. We're now you know, one of the largest writers of cyber insurance globally, I think at this point, even though we're really today only in the United States and Canada. And of course, soon coming to a village and town near you. Well, give us a sense of that size and scale. Okay, US only at the moment, but imminently not. What's of scale now? I presume you've got high growth rates. What do you expect to be sort of in a year's time in terms of gross written premium, and then maybe five years' time? We've surpassed a billion dollar run rate in terms of written premiums. And so certainly in the next year's time, we expect to write well north of a billion US dollars in premiums. The only crystal ball I've ever owned, I think, arrived broken. So I'm not sure how well that will function five years out, but suffice to say that if we have our way, it would be in in certainly the billions, plural, of written premium. And certainly, I think just the cyber insurance market alone will support it. It is, as I mentioned, like very quickly becoming the most pervasive risk that organizations face. And the frequency of claims is also growing. In fact, I think it was Gallagher-Ree that estimated that cyber premiums would surpass property cap premiums by the year 2040. And it's thought-provoking. I mean, even when we think about traditional PNC lines of insurance, like auto, in 10 years, is auto a property and casualty line or is it a cyber products liability line of coverage, you know, if the Elon Musks of the world have their way? So that's very much what we're positioned, that growth wave to capture. Well, that's fascinating because I suppose if by 2040, it was bigger than property cap, then presumably the exposures are going to be bigger than Florida and Japan and California earthquake and other things. Yeah, there's two components of it, right? There's that attritional component of loss. And I'd say up to this moment in time in the history of the cyber insurance market, it's entirely been a form of idiosyncratic loss and attritional losses. But there certainly is that question of what does the tail look like? And from that perspective, you really have to separate cyber risk from cyber insurance. And often those two things are conflated. You know, cyber as a form of peril has the ability to fall across almost literally every line of insurance imaginable. If anyone watched that Fast and the Furious movie where they're hacking cars and driving them off of parking garages, that's a bad day for an auto insurance company, not a cyber insurance company. It turns out, at least in the US market, which I'm more familiar with, there is no exclusion for cyber losses on an auto policy. It's a collision, right? And so I think insurers more broadly have to think about cyber risk and how that accumulates, although I think some of the fears are overblown when we think about the line of cyber insurance of business itself. I suppose it only takes a few losses of that kind or a terrorist attack where they get all of our cars to drive off a cliff. Presumably the terrorists would like us to be in them when they all go off the cliff one after the other. (laughs) I suppose what we've seen from many lines is, and you've seen from marketplace quasi-regulators like Lloyd's, for example, is to have pressure. I suppose it's almost the maturity of a line when it officially becomes mature is when it becomes an exclusion on all the other lines. And therefore, it must be written as a line affirmatively out in the open rather than being silently accepted on other policies. Right. How far away do you think we are from that? Well, we're well in the process, right? Silent cyber is a pretty widely discussed topic, and those exclusions have started to enter the other lines of business. What hasn't happened is the affirmative underwriting of those exposures. Right now, they're basically just being pushed back onto the client. And so certainly, you know, there's a cyber inactive and vibrant cyber insurance market, but the exclusion of coverage, for example, for property damage or bodily injury or pollution liability resulting from a computer security failure, that's not something that's widely entered into the cyber insurance market. Interestingly enough, those were coverages that we introduced at our founding. 
And so we've been offering all of those particular covers since the company was founded and we launched the product in 2018. But first of all, we don't have the limit to be able to support what's needed in the market. And many of the property insurers are sort of washing their hands of it. So we're still in that maturization stage. And I think there's definitely ample opportunity for the affirmative underwriting of some of these loss types. So that's something you'd like to be able to get into if you could get the capacity, I presume. We're introducing our own capacity, of course, and we'll continue to increase what we do there because, look, there's certainly a customer need. The loss can be underwritten. I do believe that the losses will be idiosyncratic and more than happy to talk about my views on risk accumulation in in the cyber insurance market. Oh, we're definitely going to talk about that. Yes. You mentioned about expansion. We should probably talk about that before we move on to all the really big blue sky stuff. Of course. We keep everyone on the edge of their seats. I take it that you have got global ambitions. You started in the biggest insurance market in the world. That's not a bad place to start, and you're doing pretty well there. You see you've got a differentiated offering, and you want to be able to offer it in other markets. So you mentioned about UK. And then as you're looking at territories around the world, do they need to fulfill certain characteristics before you'd want to study them? Are there certain territories, for example, that you wouldn't touch? What are the kind of requirements you need from a regulatory or perhaps a sort of legal standpoint to be able to go in as a cyber underwriter with confidence? The rate limiter for us isn't the attractiveness of an environment or or even the regulatory environment. Certainly, there are regulatory requirements to enter into any country. And if we're talking about the United States or Canada, there's regulatory requirements in every single state and province and territory. So sometimes I joke that we're in 50 countries in the United States. But that's something that, of course, can be readily overcome with enough time and patience. You know, I think the opportunity is truly global. Like there's a global need. There are global regulations that businesses, which themselves are increasingly global, are subject to. So, of course, GDPR, which is, as you well know, a European regulation, has very much had an impact for U.S. businesses, for Canadian businesses and other businesses globally. So the need is there. The data is certainly there. We already collect data on a global basis. So the rate limiter for us is really just focus. We want to be able to deliver a very high level of service to the policyholders we serve, to the brokers that we work with. And so that's something that we have done in the United States and in Canada. So we've historically been in both. And I have a Canadian wife, so I certainly can't refer to it as the 51st state. And then, of course, yes, in September, I'm very excited to announce that we'll start writing in the UK. So that's the next big market for us. And that's really where our focus is going to be for the foreseeable future. Although certainly we see an opportunity to continue to expand at a measured pace into other markets. So your philosophy from what I take so far from talking to you is that you're a very kind of high service model. What's your view on outsourcing? A lot of other cyber insurers would have perhaps their own kind of, not say coalition, but associated vendors and service providers as part of their package, as part of their ecosystem, perhaps. But the Vogue, perhaps more recently, has been to do everything in-house. What's your view on that? Do you do everything in-house or do you outsource some things? The answer is both. I mean, again, part of that providing a high level of services, we do want our customers to have choice. And so they certainly have the ability to work with the providers, the legal counsel, the instant response firms and whatnot, if they already have that relationship. But we have absolutely verticalized most of our capabilities in a way that no one else in the cyber insurance market has, right? So not only do we own all of the insurance functions from underwriting to claims to the actuarial aspects, we own, we have our own DFIR firm, a digital forensics and instant response that is captive, that serves our customers. It is a large firm. We have over 160,000 customers today. And so we handle thousands of instants per year. 
And that tends to be the first choice for our customers. It's immediately available. It's outside of the policy retention and limit, which is a fancy way of saying it's free. It comes with the policy and the people are top notch. Like their only incentive is to help reduce the severity of the event and work collaboratively with our customers to get them back online, which is what they want even more than the financial compensation that comes after the claim. So we have that capability. We also have a technology capability. So we have one of the largest cybersecurity platforms on the planet. As I mentioned, like it is used by 160,000 organizations globally, including the United States federal government, the British government, a number of large Fortune 500s, customers that we do not provide insurance to. And we bring that to bear as well to help our customers prevent losses from happening in the first place. And what's pretty special about it is it enlists the broker's help in this process. And so, you know, we've really formed a very close relationship with the insurance brokers we work with, where we're both working collaboratively to try and help manage the risk of the customers we jointly serve. And they're a vital partner, right? Because they have that last mile relationship. They have the ability to really educate and be an extension of our own resources. So that's all vertically integrated, you know, so we personally outsource very little. Although certainly we do allow our customers where they have pre-existing relationships to have that choice. So you've kind of overcome that problem of being disconnected from the client that often, because the broker doesn't really want you to be that close to the client, particularly in a softer market, that hasn't been the way you've been able to build that partnership. Has that been a positive, you'd say? It has been a positive. And you know, to be honest, it's the exact opposite in our case. The brokers, they really love selling the value that we offer, right? Because a broker coming with just a standard insurance policy that's just going to sit on the shelf of the CFO or you know the risk manager who's buying it, there's nothing particularly interesting about it. It's commoditized, right? If a broker can go in and actually sell an entire solution, now that's something that's interesting. And so many of our brokers have said that they have conversion rates of convincing particularly small businesses to purchase cyber insurance that are 4x a traditional insurance product. Like that's the power of sort of this active insurance approach as we've coined it. And so it's a win-win. Like the brokers absolutely want to sell that value, which means having a joint relationship and working collaboratively with them throughout the life cycle of the policy. And that's the thing. We're interacting more with our clients. We have more brand interactions with our clients than most other insurance companies they work with. What about price? Yeah, price is important. Is that broker happy to be selling a more expensive product because it's better? Can you compete on price with some of the others? Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of ways in which we can compete on price and in which we've developed to some degree an unfair advantage. Now, it is a premium product. I think absolutely brokers can sell the value that comes with the policy. And our experience has certainly been that businesses see it, but we want to be price competitive and can be because our customers have fewer losses. Like if you were to look at our annualized claims frequency versus the US market average, our claims frequency is 70% lower. Like if you purchase insurance from coalition, you are just objectively less likely to file a claim. And when you do file a claim, our severity, as best as we can measure it versus the market, because the data isn't always perfect, is lower as well. And that shouldn't come as a surprise, perhaps, because of course, we own the repair shop. We control that DFIR firm, and we can help fix your network. We can help put the fire out at a considerably lower cost than a traditional insurance company that's entirely relying on third parties who charge a very high margin for these services, we don't have to pay that margin, right? Because we literally own the firm that performs the services. That's really allowed us to keep pricing low. The other thing is, is that while, you know, I've said, hey, it's a very high touch level of surface, 
it's all automated. 45% of our staff are software engineers. And all of the alerting, all of the security monitoring, all of these things are performed by computers, which are able to handle volume at scale and at you know fairly minimal cost. One of the things I love about our model, to some degree, is we've liberated ourselves from the technology business model. Like We don't have pressure to sell the software, to sell the data we collect, et cetera. We make money by selling insurance, which allows us to provide all of that software value really for free. And again, we're not doing it because we're Mother Teresa. We're doing it because we have a financial incentive to protect our customers. Like It's actually financially to our advantage. Something you've just raised interest with me, the traditional insurance underwriter, their job is to say there are 100 risks and make sure that they're leading and setting the terms and have great relationships with the top 20 of those, the top 20 percentile of those. And then maybe make sure they definitely avoid the bottom percentile and then kind of play around in the middle and hopefully they get to outperform on that basis. So how much of your business is about selecting good risks or how much of it is about saying, well, actually, I don't need to select the risk because I can improve the hygiene of all these risks and improve the loss experience of those risks because I'm involved and I'm plugged in. There's sort of three tools at our disposal, which is risk selection, which is incredibly important in cyber risk engineering. And so once we are on risk, like how can we proactively, actively protect these customers? And then pricing, of course, they come with various advantages, disadvantages, and speed. You know, obviously with risk selection, risk engineering, you have the ability to stop a loss before it happens. Like those can have dramatic improvement today on our loss performance. Pricing, which is normally the only tool or one of the few tools that an insurance company has, you know, it's difficult because it takes a long time to realize. You know, once you've realized that you underpriced for the risk or you need to charge more, it takes you at least a year to earn in to those rate increases. And so we're sort of able to use all three of those tools in tandem. But of course, the, the first line of defense is selection. The second is risk engineering. And then, of course, the third, only where necessary, is pricing. So I think you've hit that spot on. Now, our goal, of course, like we're a specialist underwriter for cyber risk, like we want to be able to quote everything. We want to always be able to give a quote, not just because we want to be a great partner to our brokers, but because that's the mission of the company that's to solve cyber risk, to help organizations manage this. And so certainly at the time of underwriting, not every organization that we see is perhaps up to our standards, but that's where we introduced a concept of technical contingencies where we'll give a quote. But there's sort of a list of things that we need to see done prior to binding or shortly after binding. And it's not just here's, you know, a laundry list of things, go do it. Like we also help provide the resources or the connectivity to partners that can help the insured. And of course, from there, it's their decision whether they want to go through that process with us or whether they want to place business with another market that doesn't require those things. Because presumably those are things that cost money. So would you compare yourself, that's more like the kind of FM global model in the property world, you know, where if you put the sprinklers in to your warehouse, you'll get a big discount on your premium, but you know the cost of the sprinklers is going to take you four or five years to pay back in terms of insurance savings, and obviously, hopefully, a much improved loss experience. Do you do that kind of thing? Are you kind of helping them with a discount? I'd say conceptually, it's like that, but yeah. it's a lot less costly. Most of the things that we're asking them to do have no cost, to be perfectly honest, or very well, low cost. It's just the way you do things. Is it, was it just simply changing is the, the way order you in which do you do things. things? Yeah. Yeah. So like when we're underwriting a customer, we're effectively looking at them like a real-life hacker. And many of the folks in our team came out of the US intelligence services and played offense, if you will. So we're much better at getting into networks than protecting them. Like that's hmm. not a skill set that we have. And so 
we take that same frame of mind and we look at our customers in that same way. And we're looking for those nails that are sticking out above the surface, those vulnerabilities that a hacker's looking, scanning the internet for. And if they find it, they're going to swing their hammer, their exploit. That's how targeting works by and large, right? For most businesses. They're not targets of choice. No one's waking up and putting on, you know, the military uniform or their criminal get up and saying, I'm going to go after this business. They're doing so opportunistically because they've made some poor technological decision that's visible on the internet or some human made a mistake. And now they're going to go after you. So if we can just get ahead of that, if we can find those misconfigurations, if we can find those vulnerabilities and we can point them out to the customers, you can actually fix most of them with just time. Like that's the only cost patch this, remove this service from the internet, change this configuration. More often than not, you could literally walk them through the steps live in less than an hour. And there you go. You can bind coverage with us. So it's not like you need to spend a million dollars on cybersecurity equipment to buy our $10,000 cyber insurance policy. That's not what we're doing. And how much is the human factor still a factor in cyber? Is it still the biggest factor? In terms of the risk to organizations? Well, lost vulnerability. Is it mostly because somebody's forgotten to do something or left the door oh, open? Oh, absolutely. Inevitably, yes. It's negligence of some way, shape, or form. That is, by definition, what the policy is designed to cover. Now, it's not always intentional, and maybe it couldn't even be known. Like There's some sort of vulnerability that exists in a software package, a so-called zero-day vulnerability, that only the attacker is aware of. And so as a defender... You couldn't possibly hope to defend that, but at some level, that's a failure of your security. So yeah, the human factor is absolutely what we're covering. It's humans making mistakes in one way, shape, or another. So I'd say that is the predominant cause behind most of the losses that we insure. We've been through this big wave of ransomware claims hitting the insurance segment of the last couple of years. Is there any sign that we're getting through that, or is it still here? I don't know that we're getting through it. I think it's sort of a new normal. You know, ransomware isn't so much a technical innovation. It's a piece of malware that's practically like every other form of malware that's been created going back to the Morris worm. It's really a business model innovation. Criminals realize that all of a sudden, hey, you have this asset that you're now heavily dependent on going back to the earlier part of our conversation. And if we can hold it hostage, they can extract large rents, large ransoms. That's not going away. That model's not going away. By many accounts, I read an academic paper Ransomware has a greater return on investment to the criminal organization than international drug trafficking. If you have found a business model that is more attractive than international drug trafficking, which has not gone away despite considerable efforts to the contrary, ransomware isn't going anywhere. I think we're experiencing a temporary lull because a lot of these groups were centered in parts of the world that are currently immersed and meshed in another conflict. And certainly governments are taking a harder tack and attempting to disrupt their infrastructure, their activities, increase the cost to the adversary, which we're seeing pay off in a certain way. Again, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think, though, however, we are reaching somewhat of an equilibrium. The reason why ransomware losses exploded is really because the leverage that ransomware actors could get exploded. And that did involve some technical innovation, which is at first they started encrypting a single computer and could extract a couple thousand dollars. Then they figured out how to encrypt your entire network. Then they figured out how to exfiltrate all of the data from your network, then encrypt it, and then ransom you for both. Ransom you to get your data back and ransom to prevent the criminal actor from publishing all of your data publicly. 
And at this point, they have kind of the maximum leverage they're going to be able to get unless they can figure out how to do those first two things and kidnap your firstborn child. And you know that's something that eludes them, fortunately. So I, I don't see the severity of ransomware increasing beyond where it's already at, which was what drove a healthy portion of the increase in losses, but it's also not going anywhere. One thing I want to ask you, obviously you do a lot of things in-house, you have a great operation, but you're an MGA, MGU. This harder market has convinced some that they should at least own some of their own underwriting, that they should go and raise capital for underwriting rather than for your operations. What's your thinking on that? We already have. So excited to share that news here. So for one, and I suppose this has somewhat been an open secret, we've long owned and operated a captive insurance yeah. company, which we've used to retain the risk on our program. And so we've had a balance sheet for going on probably close to two years at this point. And given our scale, it's quite significant. I'm also happy to share that we've actually acquired an admitted insurance carrier in the US from actually Munich Re Digital Partners. And so we received regulatory approval and closed that acquisition just here recently. That's absolutely the steps we're taking. We still, of course, operate in MGU, MGA, but we also have our own balance sheet. And look, the strategy is pretty plain. We are absolutely looking to control our destiny. We're absolutely looking to retain more risk. It's something that we believe that we have the ability to do profitably. However, the market opportunity is so large that we continue to need and want access to capacity outside of coalition. And so we've been able to partner with a number of great organizations ranging from Allianz to Arch to Zurich and everyone in between have really been able to form sort of a win-win partnership where we can take advantage of really the gigantic market opportunity in front of us. Well, I should have done better research. Oh, good. It's, it's fun <laughs> to share these things on this podcast. You're unearthing them with your questions. Well, that's fantastic. Well, good. Obviously, we've been talking about ransomware. Are there any new loss trends emerging? that you can tell us about? What's going to be on the headlines you know, next year, new explosion in some horrible cyber loss trend? If you look at the main three losses in cyber insurance today, they're fairly basic things. They're business email compromise. The hacker convinces someone to give them access to their email account, or they use a weak password. They don't have multi-factor authentication in the sort. It's ransomware, as we've discussed, and it's social engineering. And social engineering is the one that actually I worry about more than the others, because the technology that is being developed now, I think can greatly facilitate those social engineering efforts, right? Whether it's the whole notion of deep fakes, whether it's some of these AI engines like Dolly 2, et cetera, I could just use my imagination in terms of how a criminal might use those technological advances to really increase the efficacy of these social engineering campaigns. We haven't yet started to see that, but if I had to predict where the new thing will come from, it's going to be that. Hackers, you know, criminals writ large, it's not sophisticated things that they're doing, right? Like they're not using zero-day exploits. Our customers are not experiencing losses from nation states and the like. Criminals, by definition, are going for the easiest, highest return on investment. So in some respects, I don't think anything is going to change in the foreseeable future. Like they're going to continue focusing on this low-hanging fruit. But I do think that the usage of technology is going to potentially increase the success and the efficacy that they have in conducting this sort of crime. And social engineering is really where I see some growth and lost costs. Wow. So they're just going to get better at doing the same old stuff. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it turns out the same old stuff has been working for over a decade, and it still works to this very day. I can't tell you how many Fortune 500 CISO I've spoken to where it's like, you really have to pay attention to email security. 
It's like, oh, email security, phishing. We've known about this for a decade. We don't need to worry about it. Look, sophisticated actors don't use sophisticated tools if they don't have to. If someone working for some government can offer your employee a $20 Starbucks gift card in exchange for their password, why are they going to blow a zero-day exploit that they've spent untold sums of money on? And that's the thing. Like, You just don't have to do sophisticated things to hack businesses. It's far less complicated than most people believe. And social engineering is case in point, right? Like, There's no hacking at all involved. It's just like a convincing email or a phone call or invoice, doctored invoice. Like That's it. So same old thing is going to happen for the foreseeable future. So we're on this fantastic growth trajectory and you're getting your share of that or probably more than your share of that. Are we going to hit some capacity buffers soon? How far away are we before reinsurers and other investors at the higher end worry about accumulations and us hitting... We talked about property cat. We could talk about it in that sort of sense, you know, when someone says, well, I just can't take any more cyber because my PML for a systemic risk is now being breached. I can't take any more because if there was this loss, I would have to go to my investors and explain something that I don't want to have to explain. I don't want to risk more than X percent of my capital base on this peril. How close are we now to developing the sort of skills and understanding that we're going to need to unlock more capacity, the sort of capacity that looks like we're going to need to fulfill that potential in growth? We're definitely at the place where there is a capacity constraint without any doubt, like if we think globally across the market. And that's certainly been felt, I think, in the London market and certainly outside. There's been a number of players in the market that have cut back their capacity or participation or that have lost capacity or had some sort of limitations imposed. Fortunately, in our case, that's that's not something we've experienced. We've actually added a pretty significant amount of capacity through partnerships through our own balance sheets, et cetera, over time. And so we have the ability to grow unconstrained by that. I'd say there are, again, other rate limiters that are preventing us from growing even faster than we are. Capacity is not one of them. But it is an issue across the market, certainly. And I do think we're kind of hitting that moment where the market has hardened so dramatically over the past 18 months that there are a number of new players coming in. And look, there are a lot of reinsurers that don't have exposure to cyber. And I think there is a significant diversification benefit. You know, the challenge, of course, is that there's just very little cyber specialization across the insurance market. There's very few people that actually truly understand the risk, even those that I would say believe that they do leave a little bit for want um, to some degree. And so that's really, I think, a muscle that as an industry we have to build. And there's certainly some exciting initiatives that we're involved with that we're looking forward to announcing here in the near future to that end. You know, I've also heard of a number of different folks in the capital markets thinking through cyber ILS and the like. So we're getting there. I'd say we're kind of at that inflection point. The market's hardened enough. People are creative enough. There's a need. The cyber insurance market itself is growing at 20 to 30% per year. So just to keep pace with demand, supply will have to increase by an equal amount. Certainly the rate increases that have been realized across the market aren't sustainable. And there's already very significant signs that they've moderated for the most part, almost entirely. And the loss ratios have come down. So I think performance is back. The tough thing, to be honest, is there never has been a cat event in cyber. So there's nothing to measure it off of. There's nothing for the person at that reinsurer that you referenced to be able to say, if this event happened... They can't look and say, hey, what if I put another Hurricane Andrew or a 1906 San Francisco earthquake on this? Exactly. No ability to do that because it's never happened. And I would say that this feeds into more of this discussion, like a lot of the scenarios that people think about, in my estimation, just simply aren't possible. Like people have a fundamental misunderstanding of 
either how the internet works or is structured. Uh, there's very few people in the reinsurance industry that are probably familiar with what the acronym BGP stands for, which is Border Gateway Protocol for anyone interested. That is the foundational protocol that the internet operates on. If you don't have a basic understanding of this, then you're going to come up with scenarios that have no basis in reality. And it's very easy to take the sky is falling approach when it comes to a risk like this. And certainly when you have a bunch of networked computers, the imagination can run wild in terms of what could happen. I'd say the other gap is just how hacking works. Hacking is a human endeavor. Like there is a human at the other end of that keyboard. And, you know, in most games where there's a human offense or defense, people understand the rule book, but that's not the case in cyber. 99% of the people that have experience in the cybersecurity realm have only ever played defense. They don't even know what game the offense is playing. They don't know what the playbook is. And that can lead to, again, some pretty rash and implausible assumptions. For example, malware taking down all Windows computers globally. It's like, you don't know how hacking works if that's a plausible scenario in your catastrophe modeling. The amount of resources, effort, and whatnot that goes into this is immense. And there just aren't that many criminal hackers, right? If you're sitting probably somewhere about in London, I'm in San Francisco. It's like, how many burglars are there in London? Is it a hundred (laughs) thousand? Is it 10,000? Like I would argue that hacking, certainly at the level that would lead to a catastrophe of the size we're talking about, is a considerably higher skilled criminal activity And how many are there? Like, are there a million? By my estimation, when I was in government, you know, there's like 10,000 bad people on the planet that like we kind of worried about. And to lead a hacking operation of the size that would lead to some of these catastrophe outcomes, you'd need a population the size of Germany to be doing this stuff simultaneously. I think that there's really a fog of war still when it comes to thinking about this. You're an optimist. If you were one of these reinsurers that hasn't got exposure to cyber, you'd be saying, you're crazy. You should be signing up. You should be signing up and just adding additional capacity and following. I say this to some degree at the risk of sounding self-serving, but it's like, look, we're putting a hefty sum of money behind this. And you know, I'm definitely putting my money where my mouth is. I think that certainly there are catastrophic events that can happen. I worry about some of the coverages being offered in the market around contingent systems failures. We've certainly taken steps to limit exposure and then to be able to model it. And so, you know, we do add a cat load when we think about our pricing and when we think about how we purchase reinsurance, et cetera. So that's top of mind. I don't want to say that these things aren't possible. So say something like the big Amazon failure or big Microsoft failure, for example, you know, at that level, kind of cloud failure, that kind of thing. Do you think governments have to come and play in that space, almost like we have with TRIA, terrorism, reinsurance pools and that kind of thing that we have all around the world? Look, I don't think so. Like, There's nothing I've seen at this point that would lead me there. And, and to be honest, it's not even the Amazons or the Microsofts that would concern me. And this is where, again, we have to get back into acronyms. DNS. DNS is the domain name system, right? It's how domains are resolved. Like, It's a core fundamental service that allows networked computers to talk to one another. A big DNS outage is of more concern to me than a cloud services outage. But all we talk about is that. Never mind that those cloud services are not one discrete thing. There are many, many, many different things that are in different physical locations connected to different power grids and different internet service providers from different sides of the building. You really have to get into the weeds, I think, to be able to think through some of these scenarios. So I'm not overly optimistic in that there can be no uh, accumulation event in cyber. I just think that the modeling that's being done right now is, is so overblown that absolutely there is an arbitrage opportunity for those that are willing to seize upon it. 
I suppose what's unlocked it in Property Cat after Andrew was, you know, the RMSs and the ARs of this world coming out with models that the third parties can really trust. Because obviously they can right. say, Josh, you can say whatever you like, but you're talking your own book and, you know, it's yep. in your own interest to talk this problem down because you want to carry on growing for the next 20 years, fine. But when RMS says, look, your PML is this, I believe that, I can kind of kick the tires on that and say, yeah, I like that methodology. So it's a third party. Do you think we've got enough third parties who are real experts in cyber accumulation measurement and monitoring to be able to make those third party investors the people that we're obviously going to need to come in to get them comfortable? I'm going to say no in the spirit of there can always be more, I think, qualified, reputable folks. And look, we run our book through most of the third party models that exist. And the disparity of outcomes between them is somewhat stunning. Like there is no uniform view. I mean, even with in a single vendor, we've tested multiple models that they may have, all of which lead to dramatically different results. And so I think it's still a nascent space. We've been working on an effort with a number of academics to publish and open source a model. Again, we want it to be independently vetted and validated. And importantly, it uses our data. And that's one of the things that I think is really missing, which is a lot of these models don't actually use a tremendous amount of data when making decisions. And that's important. You know, it's the old adage of garbage in, garbage out with any type of model. And it turns out that certain assumptions can have a very oversized impact on the result. And so, for example, take these things like cloud service providers. Right now, most of the models have some proxy for market share, vendor market share. It's like, oh, Windows computers are 60%. And so, therefore, let's run the catastrophe scenario that 60% of the world's computers go offline. Well, you really have to understand the topology of how these networks are connected to understand how these failure scenarios will play out. That's data we have. We know exactly which vendors our customers are using. We know how they're networked together. We know the topology of them. And so we have a lot more granularity to actually be able to predict or forecast how a failure of a particular service provider would ripple across the book. And we can make more nuanced assumptions around that. And so again, we do believe that there is you know, accumulation exposure within our cyber line of business, but our own catastrophe modeling has led to a different outcome than the third-party modelers. So we're hoping, again, to make that public, let people use it. It's going to be a web application. They can change assumptions if they don't agree with things or they have a different view than we do. But we're going to really try and do what we can to advance really the thinking around this particular area. So back to your entrepreneurial journey as a business, what sort of plan have you got for Coalition? Obviously, you've had a lot of private fundraising. These days, it seems almost that you can continue with the private sector for so much longer than you ever would have done 30 years ago. But you're getting some quite high levels of, of funding. Do you think you might end up in the public markets one day or is that an ambition or is it something you'd rule out? No, no, absolutely wouldn't rule it out. If you look closely at our private funding, certainly over the past two rounds, it turns out most of them are public markets investors, right? They're large mutual funds and hedge funds and the like. And so absolutely, that speaks to the changing dynamic. Like it is much easier to raise capital in the private markets than certainly it was 10 or 20 years ago. And so there's not as much pressure for companies to go public. I think that if there were in a so-called exit of the business, that's the most likely one. I love what I do. My co-founder and I have both been very fortunate to have been successful in prior endeavors. And I'll do this until they take me out kicking and, and screaming, if you will. So I don't have any intention of going anywhere. You know, look, every mistake that I've made when it comes to investing 
is selling too early from an asset that has the ability to compound into perpetuity. And certainly, there's lots of mistakes that we can make. Coalition is equally subject to the laws of gravity and rule of averages like everyone else. But I certainly see an opportunity ahead of us to build a company that can compound into perpetuity in the future. So I'm going to hold on for my dear life for as long as I can. And <laughs> if ultimately, you know, going public is the right thing for the company. And certainly there are benefits of being a public company, right? Access to the capital markets and the like, you know, that's something we contemplate. But by the same token, I'm patient. You know, the company is only five years old. So despite our tenure, we're still very early on in our journey. You kind of already answered this with your last answer, but just to be really clear, you said right at the beginning, you've always been an entrepreneur. That often means that there are certain types of entrepreneur that that often means that you do one thing for five years, prove the concept, and then move on to the next idea. But it sounds like with this one, you said you want to hold on for dear life. So is that definitely a commitment (laughs) that you've discovered this insurance world? and, And that is one thing about insurance. People discover it partly by accident and they tend to stick around. Have you been sort of charmed by the insurance world in some way and you're going to stick? Absolutely. I mean, I love being in the insurance world. And while, you know, I guess by many measures, this is the first insurance company I've ever worked at, I certainly have a background in risk taking and other aspects of financial services. So it's not a space that's foreign to me. Actuarial math is not a form of mathematics that is foreign to me. That's sort of been another undercurrent of my background. So I absolutely plan to stick with it. I think Elon Musk has shown the path to like the diehard entrepreneurs of you don't have to leave a company, you just start a bunch of other ones. And so I don't know that I'll ever have three or four or five or however many he has, but I definitely think I have one more in me and it may well just be in the reinsurance space. So stay tuned. Well, excellent. So we would expect you to be setting out and buying, well, I presume it wouldn't be a yacht for you. It'd be a a spacecraft or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny you say that because the CFO of SpaceX is on my board. Wow. Uh, We actually held our last board meeting at SpaceX in Hawthorne, California. And there's nothing quite like going through your results and saying, look, there's a big rocket to kind of distract everyone. I jest. We had very good results. So I probably should have saved the big rockets for a different board meeting. But I'm definitely probably more on the going into space train than certainly the yacht train. Like that would not be my MO. I come from a pretty humble Midwestern origin. It's quite a long way from the sea. (laughs) Yeah, far away from the sea, far away from the sea, far away from ski slopes and all the other things that that certain type does. One last question. You said that right at the beginning that in cyber insurance, if my house burns down, I can phone the fire brigade. If there's a criminal trying to burgle my house, I can phone the police, etc. And I can call an ambulance if I'm getting having a heart attack. But with cyber, you haven't got that. How far do you think have government and state institutions moved on? Presumably, governments are trying to do more Absolutely. in this sphere to protect their citizens in cyberspace. How much closer do we are to actually getting a cyber police force or a cyber fire brigade? Presumably, it would be good for business if you did have one. It would help you with some basic hygiene, at least. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that is absolutely where the world is going. And in many respects, I think the UK is a leader in this space, right? With like the NCSC and and the likes. I can comment certainly more on the events on my side of the pond, where I certainly am very aware that the government is actively engaged in combating this problem. Didn't you meet with Joe Biden recently? Yeah, absolutely. So the White House invited a number of the leading executives from the banking industry, the insurance industry, critical infrastructure, et cetera, to the White House in August of last year to discuss this very topic. And in fact, we had a breakout session with Secretary Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce here in the United States, with the CEOs, the leading tech companies and the leading insurance companies. It was a productive session. And I think the government knows that they need to work with the private sector to do this. 
And we've certainly seen that engagement increase after that event. And so we are actively working and doing what we can to take the visibility we have into the problem, which in many respects, the insurance industry knows more than anyone about what's happening across the economy and society and providing that data to the right areas of government to be able to actually take some action. And so definitely we see the Five Eyes nations, inclusive of the US, Canada, the UK, New Zealand, and Australia, all working sort of hand in hand to thwart cyber criminals. And in their terminology would be to increase the cost to the adversary. And so we're focused on doing anything we can possible to help increase those costs. Well, I'm just to keep the clock and I see we've gone quite a long way over time and I really appreciate you giving up that time. We've had a really wide ranging conversation and it's only going to be illustrative of what coalition is going to be doing. It sounds like things are moving very, very fast. And so just like to thank you for your time and make sure that you come and book in some time at some point in the future, because I'm sure 12 months from now, everything's going to be completely different. Absolutely. Well, for one, we will be a force in the UK. Absolutely. So no, it's great to be on. Thank you, Mark, for having me. We'll see you over here in the rain. Absolutely. See you soon. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.